Welcome to episode 139 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and who matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions with a commitment to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. This episode is a bonus cross-post of my conversation about sentientism with Nathan and Todd of the Beyond Atheism podcast. Beyond Atheism moves beyond questions of God's existence to ask, what's next in a godless world? If that question interests you, make sure you go and subscribe. Many thanks to Todd and Nathan for inviting me. I think they might be on their way to sentientism. Time will tell. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. I also want to extend a warm welcome to everyone who's recently joined one of our online sentientism communities. More people join us there every day, whether they think of themselves as sentientists or not. The groups are open to everyone. Just search for the word sentientism on your favourite platforms and you'll find us there. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Beyond Atheism podcast with me, Nathan Alexander, and my co-host, Todd Tavares. This podcast moves beyond questions of God's existence to ask, what's next in the godless world? If you're enjoying the show so far, remember to like and subscribe, rate and review, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Beyond Atheism is produced and distributed by Atheist United Studios. We are joined today by Jamie Woodhouse. Jamie is a humanist, vegan, and most importantly for today, a sentientist. Jamie hosts the Sentientism podcast and YouTube channel and has written articles and presented academic seminars on the sentientism philosophy and its implications. Today, we'll delve into exactly what it means to be a sentientist and how close atheists come already. Jamie, welcome to Beyond Atheism. Thank you. It's great to be here and uh, honored to have a chance to talk to your audience. And I've got to start by a congratulations on your ability to pronounce sentientism, which is probably the biggest <laughs> challenge we'll face in the conversation. So well done. <laughs> it was tricky and I was a little bit worried. But you nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jamie, for coming on. Uh, it's, I'm really looking forward to getting into sentientism with you. Um, I guess before we get into sort of the more philosophical part, I mean, just a more lighter question. Do you remember when was the last time that you ate meat? Oh, wow. Uh, not specifically. I think I was in my maybe mid-20s. And I think I went through a phase where I was switching to vegetarianism for ethical mm -hmm. reasons. But I was clinging on to my habits by suggesting that if you know, the meat was going to waste anyway, there's surely no harm in me eating it. Um, and oh, as I right. discussed that with my friends, it became clear that they would then accidentally overorder. Um, so uh, I, I realized I had to do it properly and then dropped it, right. dropped it then. So that was probably, yeah, probably 25, 25 years ago, something like that. Uh, okay. Wow. Yeah, All that's right. quite a while. It, so it's interesting. It started with moral feelings. Let's see. Well, Oh, okay. So veganism is growing. This is a weird one for us because veganism and atheism are highly, highly correlated and we can't really figure it out. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of strange. And it's also becoming a lot easier to be vegan or at least cut meat out. Have you used any of the replacement meats? Have you tried any of those? Yeah, I have. So I've been vegetarian for maybe 25 something years, as I was saying, been vegan for five or six now and yeah i've used um, quite a few of the replacements um you know my main foods are basically just 
different plants, really. But I'm I'm quite interested in the alternatives, partly because I you know I still aesthetically quite enjoy them, but also I think they're going to be an important part of, as you said, making it easier for people to make this ethical switch. So yeah, I'm quite open minded about them. So is it that's so you've been vegan for 25 years? How long have you been a sentientist? Well, not quite. I've been vegetarian for about 25 and vegan for oh, about sorry. five or six now. So yeah. Ooh. yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this is interesting because there's a progression here in like what you're, what you're changing, what you're cutting out. Was it guided by sentientism or did veganism lead you to sentientism? It, it was guided by it, but I didn't have a word for it at the time. So I had, if that makes sense. So, so I guess my journey through it really, um, you know, I can start from the, the title of your uh, podcast because it, it was really a journey to atheism that started this whole thing off. So I grew up in a uh, sort of fairly boring background, Anglican Christian context, and religion was never a particularly important part of our lives in uh, rural England where we were. Um, but in my teenage years, I did the sort of classic thing of just reading more widely, thinking a little bit more deeply about these things, learning about other religions, learning about other worldviews, learning about the history of religion too, and just came to the conclusion that they were much more likely to be human creations than something divinely inspired. So I essentially became an atheist somewhere in my somewhere in my teens. Um, atheism, you know, by itself, in a way, it's somewhat uninteresting. It's just saying, you know, I don't believe in this particular thing, right, out of so many different things we could choose. But it doesn't say that much about ethics. So I then was looking for, okay, where do we go next in terms of ethics and morality? And that, as it does with many atheists, led me to humanism because it kept the sort of naturalistic grounding of understanding the world, right? We'll use evidence and reason to think about reality, but it added on this compassion for all human beings. Um, but I guess there was always a parallel thread in my mind, partly, you know, reminded to me by my sister at the time who went vegetarian much earlier than me that, you know, humans aren't the only beings that matter. So there was this sort of animal ethics thing going on in the background in my head as well that led me through to vegetarianism and then veganism. Um, and what, I guess what I've been trying to do with this sentientism idea is in a way, take the best of both those two themes of thought and tie them together into something that mm. makes sense for me. Yeah. So why don't we turn to focusing on what exactly sentientism is? But I guess maybe one way to approach that is to ask first, what what is sentience? Yeah, uh, I'd summarize I'd summarize sentience as the capacity to have experiences. So, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, an easy way into that is to think something or someone is sentient if they can suffer, you know, feel bad things, or if they can flourish, feel good things. So any of those experiences, you know, that's, that's sentient. And as ever in sort of philosophical and scientific debates, there's some fuzziness around the edges and, you know, some degree of confusion and overlapping definitions. But I think that's the core is, you know, if, if something can have experiences, then that is sentience. Can you give us some examples? Because this is a famous problem in in veganism too where sort of where you draw the line some people you know the controversy in veganism is things like honey where in is there a hard and fast line in sentientism is it something that's being worked out like what is sentient and what isn't are there uh so very very clear yeah I mean, this, this is partly where it's, it's useful to bring in the definition of sentientism as a whole because in a way, it's irritatingly neutral on lots of really important questions because it focuses on answering the two, what I think of as the two deepest questions, what's real and who matters. So on the what's real question, it's very 
much a naturalistic commitment. We should use evidence and reason to ground our credences rather than revelation or supernatural beliefs or, or something else. So in that sense, that naturalistic way of thinking about reality is you know, a great deal in common with humanism and free thinkers and skeptics and the way many atheists think. And then the answer to the who matters question is this one about, well, all sentient beings should matter. But irritatingly, sentientism doesn't tell us which entities are sentient. It doesn't sort of have a list of species or a list of things that can or can't be sentient. It just says wherever we find sentience and whichever beings are sentient, they all matter because ultimately all suffering matters, all flourishing matters. You know, why, why should we exclude any of those things from our moral thinking? And then it suggests we should use a naturalistic approach, you know, a scientific approach maybe, to try and work that out. Um, so, you know, even sentientists will disagree about whether sentience is a binary thing that's switched on and switched off, whether it's got fuzzy boundaries, you know, exactly which species may or may not be sentient, whether there are degrees of sentience. So it's sort of irritatingly neutral on that. But I think most sentientists, because of that naturalistic commitment, would would start at least with scientific consensus. And at the moment, scientific consensus, or my view of it, is that, you know, the three of us are sentient, as are all other humans. I'm not 100% confident of that, but I'll give you guys the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um, but we can extend that using different lines of inference to many, many animals. So um, mammals, reptiles, birds, um, uh, and actually increasing evidence that many of the invertebrates are sentient to some degree as well. So I have quite an expansive view of where sentience takes us within the animal kingdom. There's disagreement about the edges. Um, but I also think that because we're thinking about ethics and morality, it makes sense to be quite prudent as well. And, you know, where there's uncertainty, maybe we should be giving certain entities the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And, well, it, on a sort of practical level, like, what does sentientist ethics consist of? I mean, I'm, I mean, we've already talked a little bit. I mean, like veganism, I guess, is sort of a big part of it. But ha- what other sort of practical ethical um, decisions or, or whatever come out of sentientism? So there's lots of disagreement, partly because uh-huh. sentientism, all it does is focuses on what I'd call moral scope, you know, who matters. Okay, right. and, and there it just tells you every sentient being matters. And in a sense, that's mm-hmm. it, right? There's no more specific mm. prescription or mm-hmm. set of implications. It's just a definition of moral scope. So, but, but then you can think about lots of different ethical systems you might apply to that. So you might take a consequentialist or a utilitarian approach that thinks about the quality of sentient experiences as being utility, and you might use that to guide your thinking. You might take a virtue ethics approach that thinks about kindness, but that kindness by definition should extend to all sentient beings, of course, because they all matter. Um, you might take a deontological approach where instead of thinking about humans as being ends in themselves and you know following certain rules that respect that, you can think about all sentient beings be ends in themselves. So you know there's enormous pluralism in mor- moral thinking. You might then apply once you've accepted all sentient beings should matter, um, but that doesn't mean anything goes because I think I would draw a pretty clear baseline that if if we're saying that we have moral consideration for every sentient being. At the very least, that should insist that we don't needlessly cause suffering or death to a sentient being. You might argue about, you know, how demanding our moral theory should be beyond that. You know, should we have higher levels of obligation? Should, is there more we should do? How far should we go? But I'd suggest that at the very least, if compassion or moral consideration is going to mean anything, it should mean we wouldn't needlessly harm or kill. And yes, in practical terms, that leads, you know, that leads to veganism, I think, because in a sense, the philosophical definition of veganism is doing what we can as far as 
reasonable and practical to avoid causing suffering, death and exploitation for um, sentient animals. So it's very pluralistic, but at the same time, I do think there's some pretty clear radical implications of any interpretation of sentientism. So it, it just it sounds like just a, a widening of the circle of what matters in the world. Is that fair to say? It's that it, it's that plus the naturalistic commitment. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, 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 yeah. and some would even challenge this idea of a widening circle. The, the idea of this sort of expanding circle, I think, is a is a powerful one because intuitively, you know, we think that you know we evolved to think about kin and family and maybe groups and then our, as, as humanity has developed in various cultures from thousands of years we have in a sense expanded that um circle of concern but some people are also nervous about talking about it as a circle because it implies that you know we're always in the middle right yes, um, yes. And, and, and it also right. implies that we're in charge of the extension too yes. so i quite like yeah. the idea of thinking about moral scope you know who simply who mm. matters and it is an extension yeah. of where most humans are. Yeah. Although interestingly, it's interestingly, in a way, I think default human culture is not far off in theory already. Because I think when you talk to most people who have a broad concern about humanity, you talk to humanists, for example, and say, you know, which humans should we care about? They will tell you, well, all of them, of course, right? There might be to different degrees. We might prioritize in different ways. But at least every human matters. We shouldn't needlessly cause them suffering or death and i think most humans hopefully at least many of them would agree with that to some degree um but then you ask okay well why do you care about other humans and at the root of that normally is the fact that those humans can suffer and can flourish you know we care about what it's like to be them we care about their perspective we care about their experiences so in a way the reason most of us have compassion for other humans is because we care about their sentience it's not just because they happen to be the same species as us so in that sense many you know, people who have a human concern, that concern is driven by sentience. And of course, many humans already care about non-human sentience too, because we all know that humans aren't the only beings that can suffer. And nearly every human, at least to some degree, cares about non-humans too, whether it's, you know, selected animals in the wild or companion animals as well. So so there's this sort of theoretical latent agreement of humanity with that sentiocentric moral scope already. It's just well, that... As, as just that with as with as with religion, you know, our current social norms train us out of that stance mm. and turn us away from the implications. Yeah, but I think humanism does have a different, um, maybe at the core, what the message is. Well, because I think if you push on humanists about sentientism, right, and like why mm. we should care for other things, or about you know like deep ecology, or like why humanists would would be concerned about the environment. At the core, it's, it would be philosophically what it comes back to is the value of human life, right? We need to respect the environment, not just as the environment, not necessarily as mm. the environment, but because of it's conducive to human life. It's conducive to human thriving. If we destroy it, we'll, we'll impact, we'll harm humanity. So yeah. there does seem to be an extra step there, which itself is a step from atheism. I mean... Atheism was a good place for you to start. How did you make that move? Um, what 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 else do we need to add to atheism and then to humanism to get to sentientism? And is there anything we need to strip away from atheism that you find, well, atheism holds this valuable and it's something that we need to relieve ourselves of to think more and act more like a sentientist? Yeah, I think there's, 
there's probably two primary challenges. And the first one is one we've already explored, which is while, you know, most atheists and most humanists, I think, would already, in theory, have some moral consideration for non-human sentient beings because of their sentience. In practice, our social norms block us from putting it into practice. So there's an obvious challenge there of formally extending our moral scope to include all sentient beings and then putting into practice at least a minimal level of com- compassion and moral consideration for them. So that's one central challenge, I think, to atheism and to humanism is to extend that compassion more broadly because all suffering should matter. So that's obvious and we've talked about that already. Um, and theoretically, that's easy given our dominant social norms. That's extremely hard to do. Uh, but I think it is an imperative. But there is a, there, I think there is another challenge to atheism because in a way, I, I did come to atheism first, but now I think of it the other way around. My atheism is because of my commitment to a methodological naturalism, um, which I guess is just a, a broader way of understanding reality. So if I'm thinking about what's real and how should I go about choosing what to believe or what to have credences in, that is naturalism. Um, so, you know, there's loads of different flavors of naturalism. One is just the statement that uh, could the you tell us a bit more all... about your flavor of naturalism? Because I'm not, I'm not sure what exactly, how, yeah. how exactly that's being used here. Well, I think there's, so. There's a couple of flavors, and I, and my personal view is, you know, I sign up to both of them. So one is, a, if you like, an ontological naturalism, which is, and I'm not a philosopher here, so you know, the, the pros will correct me, including you guys. But but it, it's the statement that uh, the natural world is exhaust reality you know there isn't there's no supernatural there's no deities there's no angels there's no magical mystical stuff beyond the natural world the natural world is all there is and that's all that exists the second type of naturalism which is the one that's actually in the definition of sentientism is more about the method you go about using to try and form beliefs and and so on and that's the evidence and reason idea so the idea there is you know regardless of whether you think the entire universe is just natural what we should do when we're thinking about forming beliefs and credences is use evidence and reason as we go about doing that so we shouldn't use revelation or supernatural um, sources of knowledge we shouldn't just believe people arbitrarily Um, you know we should use evidence and reason as well as we can you know we're never going to be perfect that should be the method we use the grounding for our beliefs so in a way that methodological naturalism is you know, before I knew the term, was what led me to atheism. But I think there's there's a challenge there too to atheists because the question of religion is obviously a cent- really culturally central one for naturalism because it's such a massive cultural story and a sense of identity and history there. So when you think about naturalism, you're obviously drawn to thinking about theism and atheism and so on as a you know the biggest topic maybe, but it's certainly not the only one. And I think there are many atheists who have sort of, uh, I think rightly concluded that atheism is a you know the correct answer, um, but they sometimes fail to apply their naturalism j- as well in other domains, and I think that can be a real problem. You can sort of jump to right, I'm super confident in atheism, but I'm still going to allow myself to believe all sorts of other crazy shit that's totally unfounded. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so in that yeah. sense, yeah. there is a ch- there's a challenge there to atheists who's like, well done for being correct on one question. Yeah. Firstly, let's apply your naturalism in a much broader context yeah. um, to every other domain too. Um, and we'll still find places to disagree, but at least if we're all committed to using evidence and reason in a, um, you know, in a high integrity way, hopefully we can have a constructive conversation. So those would be my two challenges. And they overlap as well because one of the frustrations, I think, you know, I've, 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 I think you're right. When I talk to atheists and humanists, there's a really strong synergy between sentientism and those worldviews because we all share this naturalistic commitment and and actually i also think we share this idea that 
because we don't need a supernatural basis for our morality, we can use a naturalistic understanding of the world to drive our moral thinking, right? We don't need a God to tell us that suffering is bad, right? We can, <laughs> we can work on that. In a sense, that's what humanism has done and sentientism is just taking it to the next level. So there's a strong synergy. But at the same time, there's also enormous cultural pushback, even from within the atheist and the skeptic and the humanist communities, to thinking about animal ethics. It's almost like the topic for some people is like kryptonite. You know, they, are, they have this intellectual bravery and courage to break free from harmful social norms, using evidence and reason to find a more compassionate way of thinking, except when it comes to thinking about non-human animal ethics. And in that situation, they seem often just as trapped by these harmful social norms. But that links to the epistemology because um, I guess part of the reason why I think worldviews are important is because almost every human cause problem to me seems to come back to either a failure of compassion, you know, we just don't care or we exclude some suffering beings from our consideration. So that's obvious, you know, a failure of compassion. But there's also a failure of epistemology. We just get stuff wrong. And part of the reason I think this topic is a bit like kryptonite for many atheists and humanists, and they really struggle to engage with it with integrity, um, is with some it's a failure of compassion. You know, they just carve out, for example, farmed animals or some wild animals and say, look, they don't matter. But more often it's actually some epistemological breakdowns as well that are enforced by social norms and marketing. So people will believe, for example, things like, you know, animal farming can be humane. Um, and I would argue that's an, that's an epistemological failure that you would not come to that conclusion if you, in a fair-minded way, used evidence and reason to form your beliefs. So that's, I'm rambling on a little bit, but I think that's why there's a, there's a synergy, but there's also really strong pushback. And I think it's a good illustration of why compassion isn't enough. Naturalism isn't enough. You need both. You need a combination of a really well-grounded naturalism so you understand reality well. And then you need this compassionate scope that makes sure no suffering being is excluded. And then I think we're on a more solid footing. So those are the challenges I'd put to atheism writ large. Yeah, can I, I wanted to ask, uh, Jamie, um, on this this question about you know the links between athe atheism and sentientism, um, well, I wanted to ask, like, who would you have more in common with? Would uh, sort of Christian who's a vegan or an atheist who's a meat eater? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's tough. I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it depends on how they apply their wider Christian worldview as well, because there's okay, so many different sorts of Christians. Yeah, if they were the sort of Christian that was focused on universal compassion and love and um, had redefined out of existence the concept of hell and had stripped out the sexism and the anti-Semitism and uh, the homophobia and all the other stuff that comes with some varieties of Christianity. So they were a sort of modern, um, universally ethical Christian who was also vegan. I'd probably pick them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so basically not a Christian is what I'm hearing. That, that would be yeah. a very strange well, church. Well, I don't. I think there are many Christians who are already on that path and have sort of got to that yeah. point already. So, yeah, um, I'm dodging yeah. the answer, but it is difficult because, <laughs> it's, it's, because there's there's also a counter argument, which is, you know, if if you've got someone who doesn't have this sentiocentric compassion but is committed to, genuinely committed to naturalistically understanding the world, I don't think they can avoid extending compassion to all sentient beings because there's no, as far as I've explored any evidence base or rationale or philosophical logic that would justify excluding 
non-human sentient beings from moral consideration. So in a sense, I think, you know, a naturalistic commitment sort of leads you inexorably towards caring about all sentient beings, if you really want to be consistent, coherent, and, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that universal compassion is deeply important too. Yeah. But this isn't just, you're not talking about something that's merely a performative way of acting, right? It's not just someone who is a vegan because they have to be a vegan, right? They joined a cult. The cult is vegan. Yeah. They're vegan. Right. It's not yes. just going through these motions and saying like all, you know, all animals are, are, are precious. It's someone who believes it because of these, this philosophical reason, right? They come to it as part of an understanding of the natural world. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a, it's a worldview. So it's a it's a philosophy and a way of thinking. So that's the core of it. But at the same time, you know the the practical implications are important too. So in the same way as if someone said to you, "Look, I'm a humanist, but I do these terrible things to other humans," you'd question their philosophical uh, commitment. In the same way as a sentientist, you know there are clear practical implications that we need to carry through as well. But you're right; it's it's more about the philosophical stance you know that's the core of it and then that has practical implications but it's not practical implications that you know then then uh, uh, it doesn't doesn't work quite the other way around if that makes sense and you can see that in veganism of course there are many people who if essentially boycott non-human animal products which is the core of veganism and they might do it for environmental reasons or health reasons or, or other reasons that's that's not quite the same veganism itself is actually a philosophical stance so so arguably yeah, that's why you hear terms like people talking about plant-based or alternative terms because in a way veganism itself is a philosophical uh, right. stance a bit like you know uh, in the same way as sensitivism is yeah 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 i wanted to ask how how sentientism kind of extends more broadly to to politics or or whatever i mean i'm an aspiring vegan i guess i mean you know there's still some things i eat that have milk ingredients in them or whatever just because it's so difficult uh, to avoid but i think you know about sort of broader ethical questions for example i mean like i'm look like i look around my apartment and think about all the stuff you know that was made it's probably was made in working conditions that wouldn't be very good for other humans i mean i, I imagine i mean I, I i mean i imagine that's the case and i i mean i just wonder you know how how does how does sentientism think about these bigger sort of ethical questions i mean which which extend to things like uh, the welfare of, of other humans and so on. Yeah. Well, uh, so, so, I mean, other humans are sentient beings too. Right? Yeah, so in yeah. a way, mm -hmm. a sentientist stance would absolutely inherit, uh, you know, vast tranches of existing ethics that focus on how we care about other humans. Now, mm -hmm. unfortunately, it doesn't magically resolve those right, things. So just right, as we might true. think about, you know, exploitation in the supply chain of a product we buy, we might think about government policies or, you know, what goes on at the UN, we might struggle with priorities and funding and, you know, and, and really difficult ethical trade-offs just in the human sphere. You know, sentientism doesn't fix those problems. Uh, arguably, it adds an additional one, which says you've got to extend your moral scope out even further. So I think with the sentientist uh, way of thinking, in a way, you know, we have all of those challenges about priorities and trade-offs and difficult thought experiments and the reality of politics and, um you know, so sentientism doesn't necessarily resolve those things for us because all it's saying is the moral scope needs to be broader so that we don't exclude any sentient being. Um, having said that, one of the things that's useful is that I think we found this within uh, the development of human rights thinking, for example, that 
I think most people would agree that as we've thought more generously about human rights, you know, we've gone somewhat haltingly from, you know, um, in-group, out-group distinctions and nationalism to at least in theory, most countries around the world signing up to a universal declaration of human rights. And we know how far away we are from implementing that, but at least conceptually to have as a species signed up to that is a pretty bold step. And I'd argue it's benefited to some degree, you know, the people who needed those rights according and needed to be taken more seriously, although there's so much more to do, but it's also benefited the people who were lucky enough to have the power and the position to do that thinking in the first place and, and to be more generous. And I think the same can be true as we extend our moral consideration beyond uh, the human species, uh, that it's, it's not just a altruistic uh, stance of generosity to non-human species. It's actually good for us human beings who are sentient too. Um, and you can see that in so many different implications. So uh, I guess that one of the dark hearts, if you, if you think about a sentientist stance, you say, well, like, I'm just going start to start thinking again about my ethics and morality and the state of the world, thinking about all the sentient beings on the planet. One of the obvious things that jumps out at you clearly, and we've hinted at it already, is is the farming of animals. You know, there's about seven point nine billion humans, and we farm, if you include fish, probably between one and a half and two trillion sentient animals every year for largely trivial ends. So that jumps out at you immediately as a sort of stark horror. There's a tiny number of sentient beings with enormous power who are exploiting, harming, killing many 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 trillions of others. So that jumps out at you as a stark ethical problem. But by resolving that, which is something I do think we'll manage to do over the next years and decades, you also help us humans too. Because when you look at you know, the environmental knock-on concerns about land use, water use, emissions, genotic disease, human health implications, it ends up being a win-win for you know us and for the environment, as well as for the sentient beings that we're extending more compassion to. So often it can feel really emotionally and intellectually difficult to extend our moral scope of concern. But quite often when you do the analysis, it ends up actually benefiting us too. Which I think that sounds like it's, it's part of the heart of it. It should benefit everything that's sentient, right? That's, yeah. That would be and, and, that, and, that's, and that's an important point though. I would make too many in the animal advocacy and the vegan movements too, because there is a, there's, there's a theme that comes through those movements, which we could understand, right? Because it, it's it's a little bit like having the blinkers taken off. Once once you've seen just how the average human interacts with the average non-human on the, on the planetary scale I was just discussing, it's such a stark and awful thing that can lead you to have a very negative view about humanity as a whole, mm-hmm. right? You know, and you look at our track record. Um, mm-hmm. So that's an important thing to remind ourselves of is, yeah, us, us human beings are sentient beings that matter too. And we all warrant compassion, even even the humans that are doing harm and even the humans that we disagree with. Um, so to the earlier point, you know, in a way, sentientism isn't just about saying now we need to care about non-human animals. It actually also needs to inherit all of the modern, you know, h- human ethics as well about fighting discrimination and exploitation and being universally against all forms of oppression, because us humans are sentient beings that are subject to that stuff too. And, and we matter as victims and perpetrators. Right. Which, and that's a great point because it also sets up a distinction between like something that sentientism is not, right? It's not the same as sort of that, the deep ecology that says it's the environment above all else, right? It privileges the natural world at the expense of, of the human world, the human made world. 
Um, yeah, it's distinct from that. And and you, and you talked to a previous guest, uh, Monica Miller, who I think qualifies as a sentientist. I've had some great chats with her. Um, uh, and, you know, her work was amazing because it covers both sides of this, right? She's working on the secularism side and she's working on the non-human animal ethics side as well. But you talked to her about, you know, how do you, what is this sliding scale, if you like, of moral concern? And, and the way I tend to think of it is, on the one hand, you have anthropocentrism, which is sort of focusing on humans. Um, and then you go to a sentiocentrism, which cares about all sentient beings. But as you say, you know, there are, there are further levels. There's a biocentrism that cares about all living things. So you might include plants there, you know, even though they're not sentient, it would be a direct consideration for them. And then even beyond that, an ecocentrism that cares about even the non-living stuff, rocks, rivers, trees, ecosystems, the earth has Gaia too. Um, so yeah, sentientism does draw a distinction there because ultimately it's saying, at least we need to include all sentient beings in our moral consideration. So it's quite, it's open-minded if you want to go further, um, but really sentience is what counts. It's that quality of experience um, that counts. And, and there's a frustration in that many in the deep ecology movement or even in the mainstream environmental movement have gone from a sort of anthropocentric focus on humans to a rich, deep concern for the environment itself. Um, but unfortunately, most of those people seem to skip the sentient beings in the middle. Right. Of the right. yeah, the middle. Yeah. So, so you find environmentalists who will sidestep the problems of animal agriculture, and you'll find environmentalists who sometimes, to protect non-sentient parts of the environment, will be quite happy to cull many hundreds or thousands or millions of sentient beings in the wild too. So yeah, sentientism draws us back to you know, focusing on the quality of experience, suffering, flourishing, life and death as being really the raw material of morality. And the biosphere and the ecosphere are deeply and powerfully important, but they're important because of their impact on the sentient beings. They're not important in their own right. And they're certainly not important to the extent that you would, you know, harm or kill sentient beings to, you know, protect something that has no experience whatsoever and won't care either way. All right, so we have this moral circle, but that's maybe not a circle, but <laughs> yeah, just for, the, yeah. for illustration. Um, and that encompasses all of this sentient life. But I think the thing you're stressing here is that it doesn't privilege one form over the other, right? We're keeping all of them in mind equally. Well, yeah, this, that's, this is another space... This is another space where sentientism is a little bit irritating because it doesn't insist that every sentient being gets the same moral consideration. Um, it just says they all need to be given moral consideration and we should have compassion for them all, but it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly equal. So there are some sentientists who will push more for an egalitarian approach, and there are others who will talk about whether sentience is a really rich multidimensional thing that could have different degrees of intensity, for example, and that might warrant us uh, granting different levels of moral consideration to different sentients. And of course, then you've got just the practical choices about prioritization that we all have to take in our own lives. So I, so rather than saying every sentient being is equivalent, you know, a mosquito and a human child are exactly of equal worth. Right, think, right. You know, yes. you, you'd struggle to find someone who would really carry that through yeah, into practice yeah, yes. in daily life. <laughs> yeah. It's more about setting this baseline that's saying, we should at least have serious moral consideration right. for every sentient being. And that means we wouldn't needlessly harm or kill. Have you ever had any of those considerations, like a, a real struggle between which side of the fence you would fall on? Are there any times when taking these moral considerations, it could be something big like, you know, like, well, you know, we have a housing crisis. We need to build more homes for people. 
but we're going to have to tear down an, an old growth forest. That's a, that's a big one where these things come into conflict. The, it, uh, I'm thinking something like that, or maybe something personal where it's just like, how do I, how do I either morally justify this or uh, just yeah, a quandary I'm- that you came to as a sentientist and how did you resolve it? Well, I mean, there are there are so many, and there's a danger here as well that this becomes about purity or perfection, and you know, we just, just it's in, it's impossible to live without causing some sort of harm or even or even death to some sentient being. It, um, we, we just can't do it. So in a way, we shouldn't be holding ourselves necessarily to that standard. I think it could potentially even backfire. But I guess the stance is saying. You know, we we don't know how to resolve all of these trade offs. Ethics is really, really difficult, and many decisions are extremely hard. and And we have moral uncertainty. We have epistemological uncertainty about the fact of the matter on so many things. The stance is simply saying we just have a better chance of taking a more ethical decision if we don't exclude any of the sentient beings from moral consideration. So, in that context, you were talking about um, you could talk about okay, these humans need new housing, so a forest is going to be cut down. One approach is to only think about the human interests. The other approach is to think about, um, you know, the wild sentient beings that will be impacted, the habitats that will be shifted around, and, and what impact that might have. And you may you may come to the same conclusion, but at least you have a better chance if you make sure none of the sentient beings are excluded from your moral consideration. So, in your process, you just consider, you value sentient life and what they would experience. Yeah. Whenever we we think about, even if it's something like, I don't know where we put the bird feeder, right? It's not just about how, about the view for me, it's how are the birds going to be able to get to it? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And which in a way is just an extension of our intuitive intrahuman ethics. You know, I think there are some slightly more outlandish ethical systems that, uh, whether they're supernaturally driven, you know, so it's divine command theory. So, you know, basically good and bad is driven by obedience or modeling a deity. That's one uh ethical approach there's a you know a nihilistic one where you say you know essentially you're turning away from ethics and morality completely Uh, there's a relativistic one which says you know almost arbitrarily if a group agrees something's good or bad then that's the answer right but if we put those ethical systems to one side it seems to me the essence of ethics and morality is about considering the perspective of the other um and valuing that in the same way they would. So the reason I might care about you and I wouldn't want to harm you and I might want to help you is because I'm thinking about what it's like to be Todd or Nathan and I'm I'm valuing that because of your own perspective. Um, so in a way, sentientism is saying, yeah, I mean, it might be harder to do that across the species boundary, um, but to the extent it's possible and prudently, we should take the perspective of other beings into consideration too. So just as you know, there's a uh, puppy at my feet here, Intuitively, I think every everybody would look into their eyes, and you know, you can you can do all the science about evolutionary adaptivity and information processing architecture, and um, you know, inferences of sentience from behavior and communications and so on. Or you just look into the eyes of a puppy and go, "Well, I know they're sentient." And and the reason we care about the puppy, the companion animal that shares our home, is not because they're not just because they're fun or because they're cute to look at. It's because we do actually care about how they feel. Right, it's it's, and and that's the essence of what we're talking about here is just trying to just extending that uh, compassion and that taking the perspective of the other out to include all sentient beings. Yeah. Why Why do you think? Well, you, you mentioned, um, you know, you, that it seems to f- like na- uh, sorry, sentientism kind of should flow from naturalism or atheism. 
But why, mm. why do you think some people don't get there? I mean, why, why don't people, why don't, why doesn't everyone make that leap basically? Yeah. Social norms. Mm-hmm. I think that's the core of it. So uh, one interesting thought experiment is if you just think about, uh, you know, I guess where we start out as very young humans, um, this is oversimplifying, but let me play it out. So, you, you know, there's an 18 month or a two year old toddler crawling around on the, on the epistemology side, I think it's fair enough to say that in a way they're little naturalists. You know, they they don't necessarily yet have any unfounded beliefs. Um, they are exploring their environment. They're using their senses. They're trying to understand reality in a sort of honest way with many limitations. But And, you know, they're like mini scientists trying to work out what's going on. And as they grow older, they're taught by society and family and friends. Um, one, they're taught a bunch of things that just aren't true. But they're also taught some epistemological methods that are terrible too. So they're taught about faith or just because or because a figure in authority tells you this or there's a revelation. So so their epistemology and their ontology, if you like, are taken away from that naturalistic starting point. And I think atheists and humanists would say, well, let's get back to that, that sort of sense of you know, an attempt to be unbiased and neutral in our thinking, to engage honestly with reality, to try and understand it. And I think there's something similar going on on the ethics side as well, because there are instances, of course, of you know, normally young boys, you know, experimenting with and harming um, animals. But I think, by and large, most young children don't just feel an intuitive compassion and empathy for other humans. You know, uh, when even young babies see their mother crying, they will express, uh, uh, they'll respond in kind and show compassion. But they do that across the species boundary as well. So if I think you put a toddler with a potbelly pig or a, um, you know, some other farmed animal. And and said, well, that will taste nice if you kill it. <laughs> There's no way they're going to do that, right? It's just um, right. They, they have an intuitive sense yeah. of concern for the suffering of others that I think is quite deep. But then again, as we grow up, family, friends, society, and multi-billion-dollar industrial marketing budgets, one distance us from particularly the practice of food and clothing and some of the other products we we use, so that the the implications and the consequences of our choices are intelligently hidden and. Uh, taken away from us but we're also told that um, it's not just acceptable but actually desirable and in some cases even imperative to our identity to pay someone else to needlessly harm and kill other sentient beings for what for most of us are largely trivial reasons um so so in both cases i'd you know i'd say the real problem isn't one of you know, epistemology, facts and evidence and reason. And it's not even one of human compassion because I think we all have it. It's it's really one of really powerful social norms that we've got to break. And and there I do see there's a strong parallel between the social norms that hold together maybe a religious or a supernatural or a magical or a mystical worldview and the power of a set of social norms that privilege humans and, uh, and justify what we do to non-humans. Both of those seem to be two very big, powerful social norm edifices that we need to um, chip away at and break down. And I think they are breaking. But, I, but it, sorry, that was a really long ramble, right? But to come back to your question, that's part of my frustration because atheists, humanists, secularists, free thinkers, skeptics, they've already followed the path, right? They've, they've, they've recognized some powerful, harmful social norms. They've used the tools of evidence and reason to chip away and break those norms. They've shown the intellectual and the social courage and bravery at often quite serious personal risk to, to move away and say, you know, I no longer believe I'm going to take this down a different route. And they found a more, often a more compassionate ethic at the end of it. 
Um, and I guess I'm saying, you know, you're not done, right? You, you basically need to do the same thing in the field of non-human animal ethics and indeed non-human sentient ethics. And again, break from these very obviously harmful social norms, follow evidence and reason, and you'll end up at a more compassionate place. Um, so I do, that's where there's, there's this weird mix of a really powerful synergy that you talked about before, where there does seem to be a really powerful link between these sort of two movements and ways of thinking that in a way sentientism is trying to formalize and establish. But that's my frustration at when, uh, you know, humanists and atheists treat this topic like kryptonite. It's like, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to be trapped by dogma. You're supposed to be brave enough to challenge traditions and social norms. You're supposed to think clearly about ethics and drive, you know, through evidence and reason rather than being trapped by what your mom and dad told you and what your society tells you. Yeah. Have you seen any change in that recently? You've been, how, how long have you been working on this and what changes have you seen? I have seen changes. I mean, it's been, um, I guess, to varying degrees, different bits of the work have been over the last two or three years. So that's partly been, you know, building out a website and there's a YouTube and a podcast, but I've also been doing some uh, article writing and um, public speaking. And, and quite a bit of that has been with humanist and atheist groups, actually. Um, and, I, and I do see things shifting. There is a lot of pushback, but there's also openness and an engagement and a recognition that, in a way, this is almost like the next logical evolution for um, someone who's followed a humanist path. So I've had fascinating conversations with people like Peter Tatchell, for example. He's one of the patrons of Humanist UK, and he's a you know, world-famous LGBTQ uh, rights activist. The man, man's a hero. But you know, that was one of the things he said, is I, I count myself a humanist, but this is the next level. This is where, where we need to go. And I think you can see that even within the formality of some humanist organizations around the world. So Humanist UK and international have both updated their definitions of humanism to say, you know, include at least concern for other sentient uh, beings too. You know, I'd like them to go much further, but you can see that I think people are engaging their thinking. Um, Amy Halpin Laff and I spoke at the last um, AHA conference, for example, and again, it was a really positive, engaging session. Um, and we're following up with that group again to um, think about taking it to the next level. So I'm overall, I'm encouraged. You know, the pushback is frustrating, but that's always the way when you're trying to change powerful social norms yeah do you, have you gotten much pushback what is the what form does the pushback take um the pushback is actually quite virulent and quite strong so so it, yeah it can be it can be and it's difficult to know you know what percentage of humanists or atheists feel this way but for, for the ones that do they're pretty vocal and pretty strong and i think that is because it it feels like a real challenge to something they think is a core part of their identity. And there's also something deeply understandable about human psychology. And, you know, I, 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 I thought this way for a long while too, where it, it's a basic assumption that what I am doing and what my society are doing um, must be good because we're good people, right? So, so my society that I'm part of, and I'm a good person. I know I'm a good person because I feel a good person. So the things we do must be good. And it's really difficult when someone, however directly or subtly or carefully or brutally, points out that's not the case, right? The instinctive response, as with any social norm being challenged, is to push back. Um, so for some people, they will say, no, 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 you know, humanism is about humans, the clues in the name, you know, that's it. Um, others will uh, warp their epistemology and they will say, oh, well, non-human animals can't experience suffering, despite all the science that shows us that's not the case. Or they will... Um, play along with the story that 
the animal agriculture industries tell us and that many people want to believe, which is you know, it's all about happy cows and happy chickens and um, farmers caring for their animals and you know farming can be humane. But again, when you look at what the word humane means, and as soon as you understand even the most basic definitions of the standard practices that go on in even the most free range, you know, supposedly ethical farms, it's just factually untrue. So, so it's really interesting to see, you know, humanist atheist skeptics follow those classic sort of paths. And again, it's reminiscent of the response you might get if you challenge someone's Christianity or yeah. um, Islamic beliefs, for example. Yeah. I th- it's the same package of human responses. Often. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's because maybe the person um, being, well, not even necessarily criticized, but you know, the, the subject of the the criticism, I guess, is like maybe they they realize that there's something to that to the point, and they they can't sort of reconcile like the cognitive dissonance or something, and then they the the way they or the way they reconcile it is to kind of you know push back against the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I think I think yeah. 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 And, mm-hmm. And this is this is one important thing to remember, and and I try and do this by remembering my my prior self, right? So when when I was vegetarian, of course I get people challenging my vegetarianism mm-hmm. and calling me weird and you know and all the usual arguments. But I would also have people say, well, you know, then why aren't you vegan? Yes, look at what happens in look what happens in egg production or dairy production, and you know, you only have to ask the question, what happens to the male children, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. all of a sudden a, a whole new world opens up to you, mm-hmm. right? So. And, and my response to them was the same as most people responding to me talking about, you know, veganism and sentientism, which was, you know, avoid the topic because it's uncomfortable and I yeah. don't like where the implication is going to go and I don't want to make the change because <laughs> it feels socially weird. Uh, cognitive dissonance, as you said, even a crazier, which as I understand it is like a, the next level where, you know, you've resolved the cognitive dissonance, but you still can't bring your actions in. Right, right. right. Um, yes. Yeah. Or you warp your epistemology or you warp your ethics to fit the way you are at the moment. And yeah, I was a, I was a master at all of those different things. So I try and use that to right. remember to be compassionate yeah. when I'm talking to people. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, it reminds me of the, the flip side of it too, which I find really strange and irrational is when, you know, when you, you say you're vegan to someone or you don't eat meat or you're vegetarian or whatever and how defensive they get about it. Right. That's yeah. very shocking. Yeah. And it, what it always suggests is that they know there's something wrong with their behavior. Mm-hmm. They yeah. see in, you know, when a mediator talks with a vegan, they lash out in part, it seems, because they know that they're in the wrong. Yeah. 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 And it's and it's difficult as well because I think it's I think it has parallels with lots of other social justice causes, right? Once once you've seen the problem, it's so easy to get righteous and strident and preachy and you know, get on a high horse and, and moral superiority, right? Um and and the response to that is often one that's defensive and you know the the dialogue breaks down um and it's understandable why people get preachy because it's important to preach about all of these social justice issues you know non-human animal ethics included but sometimes it isn't the most productive way through a conversation sometimes it is sometimes the shock really turns people around and their eyes are opened and they change um but so there, there is another approach which is trying to build on that common ground and talk about you know how do we feel about other humans and uh non-human companion animals and um wanting consistent ethics and building up to it and explaining how easy it is and and the other benefits of it as well. But there's also dangers there because that softer approach, you know, can risk losing the ethical sharpness. And we're talking about something, uh, you know, I think pretty deeply egregious here too. So it's like like many other social justice issues. It's it's quite hard to 
<laughs> you know, get the balance right of effectiveness and 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 ethical clarity on topics that are rightly extremely emotional for both sides. Well, let's make it a lot clearer through the lightning round, and we'll figure out. <laughs> We're going to ask you some some short yes or no questions. A good answer is yes or no. There are no right. There are no wrong answers. There are probably no right answers either. Um, and can I can I get my disclaimer in early? <laughs> yes, please. Go ahead. Yes, right. Yeah. So, so the so the disc, so I'm I'm going to try and go for yes or no answers uh-huh. just because it would be but really you, irritating for me to you to, should to give rant. an explanation. Yeah, you you can give a brief oh, well, explanation. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. But I guess the starting point is I. The starting point is I, I'm only one sentientist. Yes. There are many many others. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get to define what's right or wrong. It's just yeah. you know it's just a worldview that people may or may not. Uh, like and it's also really pluralistic and really basic as well so you can take it right. lots of different ways yes. so yeah okay. i will just share my own personal stance okay explain <laughs> okay. if it's interesting yeah <laughs> perfectly acceptable right okay yeah so yeah so i guess the the lightning round is can a true yeah usually we do can a true atheist do such and such but jamie for you <laughs> we're gonna do can a true sentientist um and so the first question can a true sentientist believe in God? No. Again, some may disagree, but I think it's similar to if you asked a humanist that question. I think if, if we have a naturalistic commitment, you could argue, okay, I'm, I'm committed to methodological naturalism. I use evidence and reason. That evidence has led me to the conclude, conclude that there is a God. So, I, you know, there, there is a path there, um, but I'd still default to a reasonable no, because I think um, from my experience, people who do have a deep belief in God have either got there through faith or revelation or some other approach that isn't methodological naturalism, or quite often they've started with a belief in God and then they've used selectively evidence and reason to try and justify that rather than doing what I think of as a proper naturalism, which is you start with the evidence and reason and then come to the belief rather than starting with the belief and then um, trying to justify it. So that's probably a little cheeky, but yeah, I, I, you know, if I'm pushed for a yes or no, I'd probably say, probably say no. That's great. Okay. Can a true sentientist eat eggs? No. Wow. And again, with, with, with all of these things, there are, you know, exceptions you might find and thought experiments and so on. But, but again, the default answer is no. And the, the reason for that is that the production of eggs causes catastrophic harm and death to other sentient beings. And for nearly everybody on the planet are our use of eggs is one of, um, you know, it's not a sufficient justification for the implications of that. You know, largely it's for uh, fairly trivial reasons. Yeah. So yeah, no is the short right. answer. Okay, uh, I have I have follow ups, but it, but I should, we should persist. Um, <laughs> can a true sentientist eat honey? No. Mm. Wow. Okay. So you're going so, for it. You're it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, tr- I'm, yeah, I'm trying to start with a clear right, answer, okay, and then I can yes, wheel yes. around it as well. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so again, you know, diff- sentiences will diff- disagree about insect and invertebrate sentience and, and w- where it sits. But my understanding of the modern scientific consensus is that bees, interestingly, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence that they seem to be sentient. So I think a default sentiences would say, yes, bees are sentient. So, you know, they, they're moral subjects that matter. And then the question is, okay, w- what is the production of honey? do to them does it cause suffering and death and in short the answer is yes it does and there's a there's an interesting angle there as well and that there are some sentientists and again it depends on your ethical system that even regardless of causing suffering and death would still be against exploitation as 
uh, as a practice in its own right, even if there isn't suffering or death cause. So those people would say, and you know, it's, there's suffering death and there's explicit exploitation going on too. So they'd turn away from that. And I guess in practical terms, this is another really important thing to think about. Whenever you're thinking about, you know, should we do X? It's always important to think about, are there a better alternatives? And there nearly always are. So honey is another one where the alternatives are really easy and direct and cheap. And um, so, yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. Bit of color around okay, the yes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Can a true sentientist believe in an afterlife? I'd say no. Again, sim- similar similar reason to um, the God answer. I think there are some people who might f- say they've followed a naturalistic approach of evidence and reasoning, you know, in an unbiased way. They've considered the evidence, they've thought more broadly, and they've come to the conclusion there is an afterlife. I, I struggle to see how you can get there if your naturalism has been of sufficiently high quality i i think it's it's possible but unlikely um and this is one of the dangers about i you know i think we might share this amongst atheists and humanists and sentientist communities because we're committed to a naturalistic way of understanding the world there is a trap here for us that you can assess other people's quality of naturalism based on whether they agree with me or not and that's that's not really what naturalism is yeah. about right it's, it's, it's not it's not that so um but still, yes, no. Okay. Still, no. no. That's, yeah. <laughs> no, I think you're. I think you're playing this game correctly by by giving uh, strong <laughs> answers. Yes. I'm, yeah, and I'm and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give another wriggle. Okay. I'm going to give another wriggle yeah. fit here as well, which I think helps with many of these uh-huh. answers. Which is generally, I I don't think sort of binary thinking about beliefs is that helpful. Uh, I believe this. Yes. I do not believe that. I think a sort of more Bayesian credence based mm. approach is much more useful. Right. One, because it's more sensitive to evidence, and two, because it just intellectually and emotionally makes it easier for us to change our minds. And I think it just is the best way of understanding reality. So in that context, you know, you might want to moderate my okay. answers to say there's a you know, van- vanishingly small okay. credence there is a God or an afterlife. Right. But okay. in, in shorthand, that's still okay. a no. Right. Okay, here's, uh, here's an interesting one. Can a true sentientist be a capitalist? Oh, that, that is interesting. So one of the strange things about sentientism is, again, it's, I think has a pretty firm stance on epistemology and ethics, but it doesn't have an explicit statement about what the implications are for political systems. So um, you will talk to some sentientists who will say, you absolutely cannot be a capitalist because we need you know, a socialist model or an anarchist model or something else. Um, uh, and you'll talk to others who will say the opposite. So that's one of the fascinating things about building the communities here is that people um, can come to a sentiocentric compassion for all sentient beings and still have very different views about uh, modes of political organization or models of economics about, you know, how to put that compassion into practice. And they will all cite, you know, the confusing and difficult evidence and reasoning that goes on in politics and economics to support their view. But there seems to be a dizzying plethora. So I've talked to people who call themselves sentientists and I think genuinely are sentientists. You know, they're committed to a naturalistic way of understanding the world. And they have a sentiocentric compassion who are anarchists, uh, neoliberals, um, libertarians, uh, classical liberals, social liberals, you know, across across the scope, uh, socialists, communists. I think the one thing that probably does drive quite directly is um, when you're thinking about social conservatism versus liberalism, I think there is a stronger correlation there with social liberalism because a sentient, sentiocentric stance is concerned with the suffering of every 
sentient being is concerned with, it's basically an anti-oppression stance. It's basically an anti-discrimination stance. You know, all sentient beings matter. So it takes you to a socially liberal place, I think. But in terms of political economy or mode of political organization, there's a dazzling variety of ways of making the world better. Mm. Well, let's get even deeper down this one. Can a true sentientist be pro-choice? Yeah. So the abortion issue is really interesting. And I do think um, sentientism is the appropriate ethical uh, model towards it. And the short answer is yes. So you know, to continue my, <laughs> my, my clear responses. <laughs> yes. And, and yeah. I, haven't done any, I, haven't, I haven't done any surveys because there's no, you know, there's no formality or organizational membership. There's nothing to join or leave. There's no governance. There's no you know, rules, if you like. So I, but my sense is that there's quite a strong pro-choice uh, prevalence, I would argue, amongst sentientists. And I, I think a sentientist view on the abortion issue one clearly acknowledges that the family and the mother in particular are sentient beings whose uh, situation and well-being and suffering and flourishing and interests matter deeply and powerfully. So that's sort of obvious and a given. Um, when thinking about moral consideration for uh, the fetus of the unborn child, again, it's a, it's a, the question is at what point in the development process does sentience emerge and to what degree? And a sentientist stance would say, well, we should follow the science to try and assess that. And we're never going to be perfect. You're never going to, you know, there's no light bulb moment where these things happen. But at least you can use a scientific worldview to try and, in an unbiased way, understand at what point in the uh, pregnancy process it makes sense to grant moral consideration or start granting some degree of moral consideration to that unborn child. And actually, when you look at many of the modern uh, laws around the world. That's one of the central things that guides much of the thinking is, you know, when does pain start to be part of the question or when does the cerebrum, uh, you know, link together in certain ways that might enable the, the unborn child to have experiences as well. So I think it would be consistent with that. But what it doesn't do is then, so, so it might give you an indication at what point in the process it makes sense to start according to moral consideration. What it doesn't do is tell you to how to resolve trade-offs between different sets of interests too. So I think, I think, you know, my stance, for example, would be, you know, follow the science about when sentience starts to emerge. And, um, but then you need to consider that in the context of all of the other people involved and what's going on. And that leads me personally to a pro-choice stance. Um, but again, you know, you get to more extreme situations around the edges and the, and the question might balance. Mm, yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's incredibly consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, again, it doesn't give you a magic easy answer. There are so many really difficult ethical trade-offs, um, but at least it gives you the raw material, right. if you like. It's like, at what point do, do which entities matter as you're trying to work through these sometimes mm -hmm. difficult situations? Yeah. Okay. Here's a, I don't know if this will be more or less controversial. Uh, <laughs> can a true sentientist own a pet? I would say they can't own mm. a pet. I wouldn't suggest okay. that's okay. the right terminology. Okay. But 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 I think we can we could we could share okay. our home and okay. have companion animals in our family. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so so I think many sentientists would say the idea of owning another sentient being, you know, is 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 problematic. You know, it might be a legal truth just in the way society works at the moment. But in the same way as a humanist would, you know, if you suggested owning another human, they might um, respond. Uh, negatively, I think a sentientist would respond in the same way about the owning of other animals. Again, because it implies control and exploitation and so on. But I think, you know, 
cross-species, you know, having um, non-human animals as family members is can be a wonderful thing to do. I think the there's a strong difference, particularly if the non-human animal is, you know, for example, rescued or, you know, comes from a difficult situation, you can, um, you know, give them a great deal of joy and love and affection and, and get that benefit for your family too. Um, I would suggest that, you know, breeding uh, non-human animals so that they can then be sold as pets is, mm-hmm. uh, is, is clearly wrong and something I wouldn't advocate at all. Oh. Yeah. Uh, because again, okay, it's, a, it's, it's, using, it's using those animals as products. It's a point of exploitation and they're commodified, right? And they're, 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 yeah. their interests aren't really at the forefront of the choices. And there are so many rescue animals out there that need loving homes. Let's, um, <laughs> let's look after them. Mm-hmm. And Jamie, finally, can a true sentientist want to create a sentient AI? <laughs> this is a really interesting one. I, th- I, think, I think we could, um, but we'd, I, th- I think you think about it in a similar way as the decision to have a child. I don't, I'm spitballing here, but I think there's yeah. a parallel, right? So if, this is also if the first time you've equivocated on one. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> but I think, I, I, and that's partly because the equivocation is really important mm. here. Because, in the same way as you know, if you're thinking about whether to have a child, you'd want to make, you'd want to have decent confidence that that child is going to have a good life, right? And I think you, we, you'd apply that same concept to creating a sentient AI. Um, now. Uh, the, the hesitation in my voice and the equivocation is because I think the default stance of humanity at the moment means we're not really ready to take that decision. Because um, if you take how we think about non-human animals as the default, you know that's where human values are at the moment. I think there's a much greater risk we create sentient AI deliberately or by accident, and you know run them on a server that uh, leads to a life of a new form of interminable suffering. So. That's my hesitation. I don't think as humans, you know, our value system is ready for us to do that responsibly yet. And there are, you know, serious philosophers and activists working in the AI field who, um, you know, Thomas Metzinger is one fascinating example who's actually called for a moratorium on the development of AI that may turn out to be sentient because he's worried about the potential for us to create, you know, the next horrific um, wave of needless suffering. And unfortunately, us humans haven't fixed the old ones yet. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. that's the equivocation. No. <laughs> yes, but you've got to be really yeah. careful, right? Yeah. Really careful. No. Well, that's fantastic. Anything else you want to leave us with for uh, – we'll, we'll give you the last word. You can button it up. What do what do people need to know about sentientism or what should they think about it going forward? Yeah, I think, I think many people already agree with it, right? What better way of understanding reality is there but to use evidence and reason? You know, what, what, what else would you do? And – what reason is there to exclude any suffering from our moral consideration? You know, surely we already care about all suffering beings. So my appeal really is, particularly for an atheist or a humanist audience, is, um, you know, we've already done this amazing job of breaking out of these powerful social norms, following evidence and reason to find a more compassionate way forward. And this is just the next frontier, right? We, we, we've got this next step to do. We've got to apply that same level of intellectual courage and ethical commitment to thinking seriously about the non-humans that suffer too. It's never been easier. It's never been more urgent. And I think it would be good for us human sentient beings as well. So that would be my final appeal. And But but the other thing I'd say is that, you know, it's just a worldview. It's very open. It's very pluralistic. I'd love to continue the conversation. So if yeah, people want to reach out via sentientism.info, you know, 
follow Sentientism on Twitter or the various social media, join our groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just uh, signed up sentientists. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love people to connect. And then it's the sort of, like, like, like other broad worldviews, you can apply it in every area of your life. Yes, you can think about personal choices you take, you know, and I think going vegan would be a great step, but you can run it through all of the institutional and societal change as well. You can work all the way up to, you know, should the UN switch from having a universal declaration of human rights to a universal declaration of sentient rights. So it really is that sort of breadth of worldview that you can run through all of your thinking about how to make a better world. And um, hopefully it's an interesting mm-hmm. idea and maybe a compelling yeah. one to some. No, definitely. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jamie. This was great. Such a pleasure. It was an honor to talk to your audience. Okay, that was Jamie Woodhouse. Um, sentientism. Todd, what did you uh, what did you make of it? Oh, oh, I mean, look, it's Jamie knows exactly what he's talking about. You can, you can tell he's done this before. And he puts mm-hmm. it together. It's tough to disagree with. Did you find a weak spot that you could make a hole in? And say like, ah, this isn't for me. No, not really. Um, it's pretty good. It's it's one of those things where uh, I think it's maybe this is like ethics and morality kind of in general, where it's like, yeah, I completely agree with everything, but I, but then you you sort of don't. Why don't you put it into practice immediately? You know. Yep, I know what you mean. And then. Mm-hmm. So you're yeah. saying you're not going to put it into practice immediately? No, just, I mean, I think I'm, I'm trying to be vegan these days. Um, and I mean, I mostly succeed. Like, mm-hmm. it's just some things are like, <laughs> like, you know, like milk chocolate or something is difficult mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to find a, a way around that. I mean, that's the tough one that you find. That's that the one? T- <laughs> Man. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a difficult one. Uh, <laughs> and like a lot of stuff has like milk ingredients in it. So like many, <laughs> I guess going to reveal myself as like a junk food uh, person, but like, you know, like Man, the, you different know, kinds of, that's fine. That's an ethos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like different kind of like potato chips or whatever have like, even if they're not, you know, like, <laughs> like sour cream and onion or something, mm-hmm. obviously that oh, would, but you know, other ones you wouldn't think of have have milk ingredients or something. Right. It's oh, like it's creamy to... stuff that gets you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but for the most part, um, I think I've switched. So it's um, I think it becomes a problem, you know, like in social situations or something. If someone's serving meat or or like or or whatever, that's a difficult thing. But yeah, uh, but yeah, I think, yeah. The thing, but the thing mm-hmm. is, it's like we get to work through this, right? Like we all, we all do that, right? And one of the things that we, I mean, the fact that we're, we are bad vegans, right? Everybody's a bad vegan. Unless, you know, your father's, your, your parents were butchers and you've never eaten a vegetable in your life, right? Like why, and to to go through it really quickly like most meat eaters only eat maybe like three animals right three types of animals four and they don't eat all the parts they don't eat the faces they don't eat the eyes they don't eat the brains they don't eat the feet they don't eat the tail right like it's the pickiest stuff why is it that they have such a limited palate i mean you know they're basically vegans they're not eating dolphins or whales or elephants or giraffes right there's most animals are not eating 
Why is it just these? And it's, and I think part of it is like, we can see it in a lot of what Jamie was talking about today, that we kind of already have this concept baked in, right? We have moral boundaries. People have a moral boundary when they eat meat. That boundary is like, you can eat cows and pigs and maybe sheep, but you can't eat dogs and cats, right? right. That's right, a moral exactly. boundary. Yeah. They value that. Yeah. And like, mm -hmm. people think about that all the time when they're, you know, like, you know, you're moving a house. If you if you move to a place, can you bring your cat or dog, right? Where's the cat going to stay? You think about these things. So it's, it's already incorporated in there. Um, and, you know, we've talked to other people on the show about this and they kind of like, we do see this unification of these ideas, right? I think we talked to Monica Miller about animal rights. Uh, I think Aaron Rabinovitz talked about this with the idea being like, there's a moral truth out there and we can get pretty close to it. And this, this is part of it, right? Like we have what Jamie did today, what he brought to us is he talked about a sort of, sort of moral methodology where mm -hmm. because we're atheists yeah. and we can look at humanism, we look at a material world, right? We see reality is material. It's not spiritual. Uh, it's knowable to a certain extent. Based on what we know, we can shape our actions and behaviors. And that gives us a rough guideline for how we ought to behave. It doesn't tell us exactly everything we can do, but it, it, it points us in this direction and we get to decide what we do with it. Um, for an atheist, like this is essential. Right now, if you look at the moral decisions being made in the US, at the forefront is a religious minority trying to dictate to free people trying to tell them, you have to do this because we believe in a tyrannical sky god. We believe, you know, some guy I talk to, some guy lectures me every week about what's in this book. And therefore, this is how we have to behave. Having a framework that allows us to explore the, our morality, to define it, to show how we come to these conclusions in a way that's mutually that we can discuss gives us a grounding it gives us ground to stand on and it gives us ground to stand on as a growing minority that's coming into a plurality which will at some point begin to set these put this in motion right and like he was talking about his goals aren't just to you know uh arise the consciousness of people who eat meat it's about, well, how do we put this into law? How does it, how does the, um, you know, the Universal Declaration of Rights look if we change it to sentient life, right? And, you know, again, we've talked to people taking this into courtrooms. What happens when we bring this into court? What happens if this is the framework by which we make laws? Mm -hmm. it, and it, it's there, it's acceptable, it's, it's in the open, it's understandable, yeah. and you can use yeah. it, it's clear. Um, yeah. So in that sense, I think it's really, really important. And it's not necessarily the conclusion, the conclusion that we come to that's important. It's that we have this roadmap to get there because you can take it as far as humanism and stop. You can take it all the way to, to deep ecology or Mama Gaia, right? And say like, no, it is the earth that's alive. It's, it's our form of collective consciousness. That's the only thing that matters. We need to preserve that at all costs. Well, you know, if that's your moral, if that's what this has pointed you towards, okay, maybe there is some validity. We need to have a discussion because that's a little crazy. But we're not talking about letting, you know, valuing 
uh, a bunch of uh, rats carrying fleas with the bubonic plague over human life here. We're talking about having a moral discussion about what's important to us. Yeah, I think it was uh, when he when we uh, talked about abortion in the um, the closing part. You know, obviously he said like you know sentientism doesn't give a itself an answer, but it gives you a way to think about it. And I mean, like, I think that's that's yeah. I mean, obviously, like thinking about it, like okay, when if ever is the fetus sentient? And then even if it is, I mean, then how does that how does it balance? Um, in these other cases, because obviously other sentient beating, beings are involved too. Um, and I think like, you know, obviously people who are pro, uh, pro-life are not, they're not thinking like that. They're not, they're not following that framework of thinking about the issue. So yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a really valuable, uh, way to think about the world. And again, I don't think it's hard to think of like a really objection unless, you just say like, you know, to hell with the animals. Like, I don't care about them. <laughs> like, it's really like, yeah. it's really just like that. Um, yeah, but you got to say why. And you can say it in this framework. You can, right? Yeah. No, but I mean, no, I mean, uh, yeah, but I mean, the people disagreeing, it's just like, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, you know, the, the analogies are not perfect. You know, when you talk about, you know, centuries ago when people were willing to kill or enslave people who were different from themselves. I think it's like, you know, how do you, you find a way to put something outside the the circle or whatever of like moral consideration, I guess. Um, and obviously that's expanded now that everyone, for the most part, I think, uh, values all humans. Like I wouldn't say, you know, this, this person is outside moral consideration or something, but, um, and I think that like that's I think we you know we're seeing it with animals too, because obviously there's animal cruelty laws and things like that. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a valuable perspective. Yeah, yeah. great guest had a lot to say, a lot to think about. And we can come to mm-hmm. our own conclusions, figure out where we want to draw the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic yeah. stuff. I also found the um, the part about we talked about uh, AI sentience sentient sentience in the uh in the bonus segment and that was also fascinating so much more to to go into yeah so yeah yeah, anyway as soon as that comes up in the news again we got to get it back just to talk about that because it's it is a lot and it's yeah it's a lot more it's pretty amazing and yeah and that is totally it's speculative right at this point it's amazing Anyway, so that's something definitely that to be on the lookout for. I'm sure he writes about it a lot on his webpage. He's got lots of uh, writings published as well. You can check out the links below. There'll be a lot there. Otherwise, everybody, we got to give some thanks, right? Yeah. yeah. Thanks for Dan. Crushing yeah. it. Great track. Great. Yeah. Nailed it. We got to <laughs> thank our <laughs> our uh, Patreon supporters, Lars, Debbie, and the AHS Plus blog thank you so yeah. much really thank appreciate you so it much. yeah absolutely and, and uh, to all the listeners out there for listening we really appreciate it uh, absolutely hope yeah, give it give it a big thank reach out to us if you have any thoughts about this as well things you would and would not include in sentientism um and if you can't contribute to our patreon please like and subscribe below um and that's it until next time Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?